welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we discuss the deeply concerning events unfolding in Ukraine as a result of Russian aggression and ask the questions about the interlinkages between defence and climate change. We speak to two former foreign secretaries of the UK, William Haig and David Miliband. Thanks for being here. So as all listeners will be aware, we are in the midst of an unfolding, deeply concerning uh, series of events that are happening right now in Ukraine with the remarkable defence of the country that's been mounted by the president and by the people in the face of ongoing Russian aggression. Now, obviously, this is a source of great concern to all of us. And the potential of escalation is something that every human in the world should be concerned about. And in no way are we trying to distract from the immediacy of this issue. But at the same time, many people have made the point that this conflict is deeply connected to climate change. It's deeply connected to the fossil fuel industry. And that's what we wanted to explore this week. So I don't know if either of you would like to come in with a comment and then we'll go to our discussions with our two guests and we will come back afterwards for some analysis. Well, my, my only comment to that, Tom, um, is j- just to make clear that this is not contrary to other uh, bellicose situations that we've had. This is not a war about fossil fuel infrastructure, Mm. but it's very much of a war that has been fueled, sorry to use that word, that has been fueled by the income produced by the export of fossil fuels. Right. Uh, And uh, so, you know, just an interesting twist there on the ever-present relationship between fossil fuels and geopolitical safety. Yeah. I mean, just this extraordinary... Um, story rolling across our screens. You know, it is very difficult not to watch the news regularly because it's 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 so visceral. But I have been completely struck by how um, extraordinarily um, many many different countries in the world have gone to very significant sanctions and then closing airspace and this extraordinary you know kind of economic um, action. And I, and you know you, we've got to ask ourselves this question. Um, is purchasing fossil fuels from Russia, gas or oil, you know, is that supporting the invasion of the Ukraine? You know, suddenly we're, we're talking about fossil fuels in a different way, like energy independence and national security are kind of the same thing. But I'm, but I'm also just sort of struck by this notion that the the, the, the democracies haven't really been, they haven't, we haven't been in favor of anything discernible for the you know for since the Berlin Wall fell almost and and I think the genius of a book like Orwell's 1984 is like when you see something really bad it can help you recognize the opposite direction towards something good so even in this crisis I actually hold a lot of excitement that something good may come from it quite right absolutely so um so we're going to go to our conversations now and um there's two guests both of them former guests on this podcast probably well known to all listeners. But first, we're going to hear from uh, Lord William Hague. William Hague, of course, is a former leader of the Conservative Party and subsequently Minister of Foreign Affairs under David Cameron. Uh, Since leaving politics a few years ago, he's done a range of things, including currently chairing the Royal Foundation, deeply involved, of course, with the Earthshot Prize that we reported on extensively last year. And secondly... Um, A former Labour Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, um, had a long career in politics. Uh, He was Environment Secretary uh, under Tony Blair and then Foreign Secretary under Gordon Brown. 
Since leaving politics, David has moved to New York and he's now the CEO of the International Rescue Committee, the world's largest organization focusing on the humanitarian crisis around refugees. So we're going to go first to William. And then after that, uh, we will flip over and we'll play you the conversation we have with David. Both these conversations were recorded on Wednesday, the 2nd of March, which is yesterday, if you're listening to the podcast the day it came out. And we will be back at the end with some discussion on what we heard from both of them. So here are the conversations. Well, Lord Hig, thank you so, so much for joining us on Outrage and Optimism on... Uh, Honestly, and such a crazy moment in in our life and the history of the world. Uh, I think we're all still struggling even to figure out what is going on. So um, we would very much appreciate having that kind of a big picture conversation with you for a moment. Basically, we we could we could set out two different scenarios here. We could be sliding toward global catastrophe if uh, Russia decides to hit a button, or we could say, well, are we actually in the face of a common enemy and having identified the common enemy, are we actually seeing the birth of a new political order with a strength and a conviction that we had never seen before? How will we know which path we're moving down? Well, that, of course, typically is a very good question, uh, Christiana. And um, I think, I, I believe we should move down, of course, I believe, that second path that you are talking about. And that the the reawakening that we are seeing in much of the world about understanding what is really important. Uh, when you see what people are struggling for in Ukraine today, it really puts into perspective many of the of the troubles of our daily lives um, and there is a real unity in much of the world so i hope that is going to lead to seeing many things in a that this will be a revelatory moment of clarity about the world not only mm. about the dangers of one man having excessive power for a long time and the mistakes that that can lead to um, but about what we really have to do to save ourselves in all sorts of ways. Do I actually, well, your question is, how will we know we are on that path? And I, th I think we will only know if, if, if in a few months down the road in this crisis, we're not only handling it well as a world, but we are linking it to other issues and saying, well, it's not just one thing on its own. It is a struggle about how power works in the 21st century that has implications all over the world. Um, and a subject dear to all to our hearts, it is linked to uh, people being free of the dependence on petrostates that is mm. such a poisonous aspect of world affairs. Absolutely. So so let's go into that also a little bit more, because there are huge implications here, obviously, for the oil and gas industry as a whole, assuming, of course, that we don't go the catastrophe route. Um, what what do you see as the major implications? And, and those could obviously go in many different directions. But w what scenarios have you been thinking about? 
Well, there's an immediate implication in price and an intriguing thing, differential price, because as we speak today, uh, Russian crude oil costs about $12 less than other people's crude oil uh, because people actually don't want to buy it, even though, you know, it's the oil that they do need at the moment. They don't want to buy it. Uh, now, that is an interesting new phenomenon. Uh, it's it's not the result so much of sanctions as of just people on mass companies around the world taking a decision that they are not going to do. That's their own decision. Um, in a way, that's encouraging that people can take positive matters into their own hands. I think then, however, there is some negative effect uh, of all of this. this is a huge distraction from what we really have to do. And uh, the, as you know, people often, when faced by higher energy prices, some people make the argument, well, we, we can't afford then at the moment to invest in cleaner energy. And you hear that argument in the United Kingdom sometimes, I'm ashamed to, to say. Um, so there is some negative effect. And, and Germany uh, confronting its dependence on Russian gas could easily end up burning more coal, which is the worst thing of all to do, from a, as, as you have often pointed out, from a global point of view. But of course, in the longer term, well, this is none of this would be happening if Russia was not a country based on a corrupt pyramid of financial and political power based on oil and gas revenues and other countries dependent on its sale of those things. So we can really see that we can free ourselves from some of the causes of conflict in the future uh, if we encourage the energy transition. It's very much a question of timing, isn't it? Because although we have seen some divestment already, very interestingly, of some of the oil and gas uh, companies divesting out of their Russian assets, um, which is very interesting move. Uh, but it's all a question of timing, whether we're able to manage the short-term crisis on the one hand, while having the long-term view, the the uh, higher lights on our uh, on our vehicle here, and to see that what we really need is precisely to for every country to be as energy independent as possible. But there really is a a, a choice here whether. Or is there a choice? Can Do you think that we can manage both the short-term and the long-term, the short-term crisis and the long-term wisdom? Well, I, we can, of course, because, you know, if you and I were in charge of everything, uh, we would. It, it is possible to do it. It is both intellectually and physically possible to do that. It's extremely difficult to do that in this situation because there isn't global agreement on what to do. And I think the most worrying aspect of this overall is that if the world is going into reverse on cooperating at the uh, between the, the biggest powers of the world, um, well, that is going to make it harder to make agreements on a whole range of issues. That includes climate change, arms control, what happens in space in in future. I think that is really, for me, that is the biggest negative about what is happening now, just at a moment when humanity needs to be able to come to common agreements. Uh, we are actually squabbling, uh, you know, we're, we're in a burning building falling out about 
how we're going to, who owns the furniture and things like that. Um, so we can do it, but we're not currently on course to do it. And although you and I are uh, born optimists, um, I, I actually feel people are going to need yet another shock, you know, some bigger shock in many parts of the world um, in order to really change behavior and see that the things have to, that we've, in this decade, we have to change things very positively and we have to keep going at full tilt on everything we're doing on on climate so i i i think we're not there yet we can do it but the the population of the world is not yet there mm. Mm. william i mean you've answered part of this already but i'd love to just ask you i mean putin is now dragging the world into an era of higher defense spending more military priorities right at this moment in the middle of this decisive decade whatever happens next a large amount of the bandwidth of foreign ministers and defense ministers and energy ministers is going to be directed towards this what i mean what do you think people can do to try to ensure that climate doesn't get lost in that mix it feels like it's happening far away and there's not much we can really do about it but what would you say will make the difference because now it feels like we need to just push on that right now? Well, it, it's just crucial to make the argument in every forum at every level that these things are related. Solving the problems of climate change can't be just ignored while this is going on. It's like, oh, we, we don't have to focus on that because we've got this immediate priority. They are actually linked. A, a world which um, has more decentralized provision of energy and more renewable, sustainable provision of energy wouldn't be in this situation. And there isn't going to be other answers. It's not like there's going to be a political answer to this. You know, th this war could go on in some form for years and yeah. for in a future insurgency if Putin manages to, to conquer Ukraine. So that it, it's unlikely there's going to be a... Uh, a political breakthrough. So what are we going to be doing in the meantime to address the fundamental causes of this? We have to get to some of those root causes. So we, I, we have to make that argument in, in, uh, in all the democratic nations of the world and the international forums of the world. Um, and we have to take some good examples and hold them up. So if Germany, as a result of this, it, uh, we, I just mentioned how it's short-term, uh, the short-term implication might be bad, but if they end up, they are advancing by five years, their target for um, having their energy supplied durably. Yes. Um, well, if they can do that, there is a great example that we can hold up to everybody and else. And if they stay the course, right, because there will be a temptation to now use that as a reason, to not say excuse, to uh, to get off that course. So staying the course This is, it's, it's a very interesting test of the resolution of these countries who have put themselves on a path. It's a very interesting test precisely about the short term uh, on the one hand and the long term and how to calibrate both. And it's an interesting test for conservatives. You know, as you know, I speak as a former conservative leader And I think the first time we ever spoke together uh, was um, when I wrote an article a few years ago saying it's a very conservative thing to care for the environment and to act on climate change. And that British conservatives have got that message on the whole, um, but that Americans and Australian conservatives 
and, uh, and some of it hadn't. You can say that quite loudly died. while you're in New York, actually. It would be great if you could um, push that. I am. I'm <laughs> in New York. I will be, I'll be saying that very loudly. Well, conservatives also want the West to be strong. Um, and part of that strength, vis-a-vis uh, -vis somebody like Putin, um, part of the strength of not being not succumbing to this different view of how power works in the world that he has, which is not that it's an interdependent system and uh, what's important is to establish the rules. His view is you get people to be dependent on you and then you can squeeze them with that, uh, with the mm. leverage to get a result. It's conservatives all over the world, just like people of other political persuasions, want to stand up to that. And so all the more in the next few years, the importance of clean energy is should be integrated into conservative thinking about the grand strategy of the Western world, if we can call it that. Hmm. William, I know we need to wrap up. Uh, just one more question. The implications of this for China. I mean, do you think that this is going to lead to a road in which China becomes more isolated as well? Or what, what, what would you say about that? This is a tricky moment for China. Now, let's be clear. Putin would not be able to do this if China did not have his back to some extent. And uh, he will have calculated that whatever the West does, he can still get his semiconductors through China somewhere. And he, was, right. he can still sell more energy to China. And China has been in an awkward abstention at the UN Security Council, despite having for decades supported the territorial integrity of nations uh, around the world. Um, it's in an awkward um, spot. Now, I hope that China becomes more critical of Russia because, you know, the danger for China here is that this reawakening of the West that we are seeing changes attitudes to China that people say, now, wait a minute, here we have a crisis caused not by the Russian, not by some consensus in Russia, but by one man and a tiny circle of people working with him, imposing his will, getting very out of touch, um, in power for too long with territorial ambitions. And then they're going to say, oh, wait a minute, there's somebody else in the world who is going to be in power for too long and might get out of touch and has territorial ambitions in Beijing. Um, and so attitudes to China might change. Now, we don't want that breakdown of global cooperation that comes from that. But um, I would strongly recommend that China takes a more critical view than it has of what's happened in Russia, because it's not in China's long-term interest to support it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. We don't want to take um, any more of your time. Really appreciate uh, your thoughts on this. And of course, uh, everyone is remaining vigilant for the huge, huge consequences of every step of the way, every step of, uh, of decisions of, of every country are going to be critical um, over the next few days and weeks. So we, we remain vigilant. And thank you very much for raising your voice, um, William, to, to warn us about uh, the, the interrelationship between this and our fossil fuel dependency. Really appreciate that. Well, thank you, Christiana. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. That was Lord William Hague, and now we're moving on to the conversation with David Miliband.
David, thank you so much for uh, for joining us on Outrage and Optimism today, in which we're all grappling with this horrifying reality that we are witnessing. I'm sure this has been on your mind since uh, since it started, and we would really love to hear where you are uh, with your thinking. Are we actually sliding toward global catastrophe with the uh, press of a button? Or are we perhaps seeing the birth of a new political order? And if we can't tell the difference between that now, how would we know which direction we're going in? Hi, Christiana. Very good to be with you. Let's try and chunk that up a bit. And you uh, ask questions and interrupt so to try and get, get what you want uh, out of this. We've been, we, the International Rescue Committee, we're a global humanitarian charity. We've had a team in Poland for the last four weeks uh, really scoping out partner organizations in Poland and neighboring states, but also partner organizations, potential partner organizations inside Ukraine. I mean, there are really three fronts to the, and I know you want to talk about the geopolitics, but in a way, the humanitarian is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the mm -hmm. pain associated yeah. with this crisis. And so we will get to the geopolitics. But there are three fronts to the humanitarian crisis. The, the first is for the civilians caught in the fighting. And the names Aleppo and Grozny speak to Russian tactics in warfare. And what we are hearing and seeing from Kharkiv and uh, elsewhere, potentially Kiev as well, speak to a I can only call it a pulverization campaign, a model of warfare that is about pulverization. And so the, the most dangerous front for civilians is obviously if you're caught up in the middle of that bombardment. Uh, the second front is the internally displaced. There are millions, really, who are on the move inside Ukraine. There are no good numbers on it, obviously, because they're not crossing checkpoints, at least not yet. And then the third front is obviously the refugees. We're going to hit a million either this afternoon or tomorrow, uh, Thursday, for the number of refugees. So my, what's my perspective? My perspective is what can we do? How can we deploy our expertise, our teams, our money, the money that's coming in as a result of this crisis, um, in an area where, frankly, Ukraine itself, $7,000 per person per head annual income, Poland, Hungary, advanced industrialized countries, where the uh, capacity of the state and of civil society to support people in humanitarian distress is much, much greater than in Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, than in South Sudan, um, Uganda, than in Myanmar, uh, Bangladesh, than in Afghanistan, Pakistan, where we are also massively stretched. And so my perspective is inevitably more conditioned by that humanitarian imperative, but every humanitarian crisis is in fact a political crisis. And mm -hmm. this one is born of a political crisis. It's, it, it's the capstone, I said in my article in the New York Times, the invasion of Ukraine, the second invasion of Ukraine after 2014, is the capstone of what I call the age of impunity. And impunity, as you know, is crimes without punishment, actions without accountability. And the impunity here is the breach of the territorial integrity and sovereignty of a, a sovereign state, of a nation state, but also the abrogation of rights of individuals, of civilians, of citizens who are having their lives turned upside down. And so to answer your question, no one yet knows whether this is 
a new world order. What we know is that there is a systematic attempt to roll, rewind the clock by 30 years, not, not to, the creation, to, to the recreation of the Soviet Union, but to the immediate period after the end of the Soviet Union and the dispensation that emerged after 1989-90, fall of the Berlin Wall, etc. Now, that attempt, I think a week ago, um, people, commentators would have feared that it had high chances of success. What's happened in the last week is there's, there's been an enormous counter-reaction. Mm. And the determination of essentially freedom-loving people everywhere, uh, including in Russia, to say no has been enormous. And the willingness of governments that have often been attacked for their slowness, bureaucracy, inability to take big decisions um, has been outmatched because... Germany's got a new defense policy. Uh, Europe has a new international policy. Sweden and Finland are contemplating new defense policies themselves. And in a long and winded road to the subject that you have led on with such extraordinary capacity, there is now a national security imperative for the world's largest, richest single market to get off Russian oil and gas, just as there is a climate (laughs) imperative to get off oil and gas. So... Your outrage is the first part of the title of your podcast. There should be so much outrage about the the impunity of the Russian attack. Optimism, I can't offer you, but there is um, that there is a possibility of a of a strategic reorientation. Mm. Sorry for the long winded answer. I was no, that was um, that was really very thoughtful. Um, I was struck by the. Um, European term being used about a violation of human coexistence. Um, How interesting a choice of words there where they really are looking at this from a human or let me say humanities perspective. And uh, it's, it's a quite interesting choice of words because one could say this is a warfare in which some have chosen old-style warfare techniques and the others are uniting around a very new kind of warfare, right? Economic pressure at the outmost, more than we have ever seen before. Squeezed in between is the humanitarian pain and the cost that we are already seeing and that will only escalate. Um, And then also, and that is already for sure, we don't even have to wonder if that's going to happen. What we do have to wonder still is whether the squeezing in between these two choices of warfare, is that going to lead to more energy independence, which is what everyone here on the podcast would prefer? Um, Or is this going to lead to even more entrenchment in in the uh, incumbent industries? Well, let me go back to the beginning of the question. The great um, missing element of discussion of relations with Russia uh, over the last 30 years, I think, has been the denial of agency to the peoples of Central and Eastern Europe. In all the discussion on the one hand of quote-unquote NATO expansionism, I reject that phrase, but that's the, the Russian allegation, and it's often parroted in the West by people who want to say it was the quote-unquote expansion of NATO that has led us to this uh, past. That denies agency 
to Poles, to Hungarians, to uh, citizens of the Baltic states who chose that they wanted to get defend themselves by joining the EU, joining um, NATO. Now, we mustn't repeat that denial of agency in our assessment of the situation today. There are pictures, I mean, I, I almost tear up recalling, I've just seen this, of a line of Ukrainian, I mean, a, 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 a road in Ukraine blocked by thousands, if not tens of thousands of Ukrainians who are just standing there and saying, Human bodies. you shall not pass. Human bodies. I mean, that yeah. is an extraordinary effort at people power. I'm not a romantic who's going to pretend that that can, that, that, that can silence the guns in the same way that it's not straightforward, that san sanctions can't stop tanks. But let's not fall into, let's not, let, let's recognize the agency of the people on the ground, which is extraordinary. And there is, I heard Anne Applebaum today talk about a civic nationalism. I'm always, I always say patriotism, good, nationalism, bad. Patriotism can be positive sum, nationalism can be, um, it is uh, zero sum at best, negative sum. She was making the point that a Jewish president, a um, society of Russian speakers and Ukrainian speakers are pushing, uh, are developing a civic nationalism that is standing up for uh, the kind of pluralism that was hinted at in the quote that you've given from um, Josep Borrell. And, uh, but of course, the coexistence isn't just within nations, it's between nations. And I always remind people in 2008, after the um, Russians invaded Georgia, I went to Kiev and said to, and gave a speech where I reminded people that uh, George Kennan, who famously wrote the long telegram after the Second World War, he said Russia's tragedy is always to look at its neighbors and see either vassals or enemies. And hmm. I think that the point about coexistence is that you don't see neighbors as vassals or enemies. You see them as potential partners and people who are living their own lives and you want to coexist with them. So I think that... Um, the values at stake and the order at stake could not be more fundamental here. It's interesting that China has been put in a pickle by this decision. Yeah. It's uh, vacillating on the on the on the fence, really, um, because it can see the danger of a disrupted world order. It's doing quite nicely, thank you, out of a slightly more ordered uh, world. And I guess my my perspective is that your interest in the global climate and the stability of the global climate is 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 a preeminent interest in a, in a preeminent global public good i like that way of thinking about a stable climate just in the same way that um nuclear security is a global public good just as treatment support for countries hosting refugees is a global public good and what we're fighting for here um is whether or not there is an international order that can tend the global commons in such a way as to sustain the global public goods. Because the alternative to a, 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 an ordered global system is either three or four systems, uh, a, a Russian sphere of influence, a Chinese sphere of influence, a Western sphere of influence, or a kind of leaderless world, a, global, a more anarchic situation. So I think mm. that, that the right way to think about your question is at the level of tactics where this question of the um, national security imperative 
boosting the European climate imperative is important, but also yeah. at the level of, if you like, concept. What's the global concept that, that we've got? And I think that there is one available and it should be a rallying point. And it's that we have to live in this world together. We live with one planet. And that needs rules and it needs rules that are about accountability, not impunity. So, David, this is so interesting. And, and I mean, you know, sustaining public goods is hard to do at any time. And and I'd love to just go one level deeper on those tactics because Putin is now dragging the world into a scenario, in any scenario, that it's more focused on military spending and more focused on on defence priorities in the middle of the most decisive decade, as we would claim in human history, to determine the future of our climate. What are those tactics that can actually enable us to continue to focus on this bigger picture rather than get drawn into these you know, heartbreaking details of these specific things that have the very real potential to distract us from our task and mean that as a result of this, we fail in maintaining a stable climate? Well, that's a very good question. And what I've learned when living in America is that when people say that's a great question, that which they say a lot, that generally means that they don't know the answer. So when I say <laughs> that's a great question, um, I, 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 don't, I don't have an easy answer to that. Because, look, the lesson of COVID is that clear and present danger isn't enough to make for international action. I mean, the clear and present danger of mutations of the virus has not helped vaccinate the world. The places that the International right. Rescue Committee works is, you know, less than 5% vaccination at best. Uh, and, and secondly, there's a real danger that the the shift of focus to Ukraine becomes a myopia, which is, which is dangerous. Now, I, I've said about the humanitarian situation, we, the world, have got to be able to walk, chew gum and play the violin at the same time. <laughs> that we've got to be able to address starvation in Afghanistan, a breakdown in Ethiopia, a tragedy, a crime in Yemen, um, uh, coups in the Sahel, and address the Ukraine crisis. Um, I think that if you want me to just throw one thing into the pot, what, what could, rather than predict the, the future, say, well, what could shape the future? I think the people PowerPoint is real. Big change happens when there's government leadership, business and NGO innovation, and mass mobilization, but they don't have to happen in that order. Yeah. Um, the lesson of this crisis may be that people can move first or businesses and NGOs can move first and then governments run and catch up, but then they end up leading because they've got yeah. legitimacy and, and power. And so I don't want to just say, well, we've got to re you know, redouble our efforts. That's, that's, that feels a bit pathetic. But I do think that this is interesting to hear the army generals say morals and morale are the most precious commodity in war. Hmm. Oh, yeah. And that's about people. And so, look, David, it just seems like there's this extraordinarily kind of teachable moment in the world at the moment. I mean, you know, all these sanctions and, I, you know, I can't even believe that the airspace of the uh, USA and, 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 you know, the EU is closed to, to, to Russian aircraft. I mean, you know, there's this, this, it's extraordinary what's going on. You know, we've talked about national security and energy independence now being the same thing. You know, maybe I'm being a bit Panglossian, a bit overhopeful, but could the world's democracies be in a moment of sort of rediscovering their values? Yes. I mean, I think that I said at the beginning that this was an attempt to rewind the clock by 30 years by Putin. Uh, what I also say is it may well be the moment when not that the clock is rewound to 1990, but the spirit of 1990 is rediscovered, with all, <laughs> tempered by all of the failings that have happened since 1990. And that would be the ultimate irony, because remember, the pictures of people scaling the Berlin Wall, those were... Mm. 
um, incredibly inspiring because they were people standing up for human values. And that's really important. So is that, could this be a, a moment that galv- uh, has this been a moment that's galvanized the West? It has. There's no question. And it's galvanized Switzerland to uh, move um, into this space as well. It's moved Ireland to constructively um, support the deployment of EU um, uh, military material. So that is significant. And we have to um, build on that with the unity and the humility, uh, but also the clarity about what's at stake. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to, take, to give you a so what does that mean, Miliband? Then stop waffling on, just give me some specifics. Well, it means that we need the same yeah. unity about peacemaking in Yemen. We need the same unity about gender-based violence in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And we need the same unity um, over climate. And we also need to learn one other thing, which is that it's unity plus action. Unity doesn't mean waiting for everyone to agree. Sometimes you just have to get on with it. And coalition of the willing is a very mixed phrase, but those who are willing to act should act and they shouldn't be held back by the speed of the slowest. Courage speaks to courage, the suffragette said. Hmm, thank you. Well, what a, what a moment, uh, David. It, it could be, you know, the worst of times or the best of times, as you've said. Uh, and let us uh, let us definitely pray, hope, meditate in the direction of it being the best of times. It could be the uh, ironic awakening that we have uh, from a, a very deep and painful and hugely costly slumber that we've been in for for such a long time. And when I say costly, I don't mean just in terms of uh, of financial cost, but human cost. Mm. Um, and so is this is this the moment for uh, for awakening? Things are going to, I'm afraid, things are going to get worse before they get better, especially for the people in Ukraine, the people Ukraine. of Ukraine. Uh, you know, if any of the four or five of us were in Ukraine, if we were men, we'd be conscripted. And if we were women, we'd be either in the metro stations or we'd be uh, fleeing to the borders. So um, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's as sobering a moment as... Afghanistan, as Syria, um, as Tigray in, in, in Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, humanity's capacity to get things wrong is, is huge, but it's never had more resources to get things right. And that's what I always keep coming back to. Hmm. Well, on that wonderful, hopeful conclusion, uh, David, thank you. Uh, thank you very much. We will all be obviously stay vigilant, all of us. Um, and uh, might, might might come back when we have when the dust has settled and the horrific things have begun to slow down. Um, might come back for a lessons learned conversation. But thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Cheers, thank David. you. So how fantastic at this moment to be able to sit down with two former foreign secretaries who, of course, in their lives have done a lot more than just be foreign secretary, although that was a big part of both of their careers. Uh, I'd love to hear both of your reflections on what we heard from both of them. Should I go first for a change? <laughs> Why don't you, Christiane? <laughs> he always seems idea. to want you to. So. <laughs> um, well, I am I'm struck by a couple of things. First, um, they just the outrageous, outrageous war of choice. This is really a war of choice. Yeah. Putin has chosen to wage war against a nation that had no provocation, has not, you know, nothing. This is a 
simply a choice to go to war against a uh, neighboring nation. So that already is just, you know, completely outrageous. Um, and it is already today in the present provoking a humanitarian crisis that will only rise, which we heard from David. Now, in addition to that, this is a tale of two futures. We are really seeing, we can already see evidence, if you will, or at least fear um, of one or two futures emerging. The panic that many of us are feeling is if future one emerges from this, which would be a catastrophic world, should Putin decide to go to escalate even further, whereby the humanitarian crisis, let alone the environmental, the survival crisis of, uh, of humanity is beyond anything that we can possibly imagine. Let us hope that that is not the road that we're taking. The other future that could be emerging, although frankly, you really, really, really have to look behind and underneath most of the news that newsreels that we're uh, reading, to still harbor the hope that there is the emergence of a new political order in the face of a common enemy, and that everyone except Russia and China teetering, but India also, by the way, um, and the UAE, let's put them all three because they were the ones uh, the, the ones teetering there, and, um, and China not being willing to go either way in the Security Council. But with those exceptions, could there be, as, um, as was spoken uh, by both of them, a new political international alliance here? Mm. Uh, very interesting that Russian gas prices are falling, that global gas prices are rising, um, and that there is a divestment from many of the companies, uh, many of the oil and gas companies divesting from the oil and gas assets, and that's that that's the present right now but does this actually need lead to the wake up call that we were discussing of everyone realizing that we have been fed the untruth that we are dependent on a few countries for energy provision and the fact is in this century that is just no longer true we can actually strengthen our energy independence and thereby minimize these kinds of temptations. Hmm. I mean, look, just one comment from the news. Um, at Berenberg Banks, the chief economist said, faster diversification away from Russian oil and gas, more spending on renewables, plus nuclear power and on hydrogen for storage and energy are the long-term impacts of the Russia-Ukraine crisis. And you know, just one story from from the charity I work in, CDP. You know, we saw a massive increase in interest in in our sort of products, for want of a better word, um, directly correlated to COVID. And it was really strange because I think the whole world felt vulnerable, and then they thought more about climate change. The world is feeling vulnerable again right now, and I hope and believe it may lead us to change and pay more attention to our economic, our security interests uh, by, by recognizing that, you know, we are a we and and there are things that we are against and there are things, therefore, that we're in favor of. Yeah. I mean, it's exactly as you say, that's the that's the path forward, right? But it's, we have consistently shown that it's hard to take. 
when there's an acute thing yep. that happens. And as a result of that, wisdom seeks in and we take the deeper path that enables the mitigation of future risk. The, the, the situation we're facing right now, and it was, I mean, so fascinating to sit down with two people who are as deeply steeped in geopolitics as anyone on the planet and have sit in those, sat in those seats. And what I took from both of them was that they're really worried. I mean, they didn't say it in quite that way, although they sort of did. They're really worried that we're going to get distracted by this and we're not going to remain focused on these critical issues. And, and they both said there's a chance we can and here's what we need to do and that issues are connected and we need to keep making that case. But probably the general direction of travel, unless we're able to pull off something significant, is that this takes the world's attention in the middle of this most decisive decade to something that it should be focused on because it's a humanitarian outreach, but at the same time takes us away from where we need to focus, which is an urgent, urgent focus on transformation of infrastructure and sources of energy. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I agree with you, Christiana, that it's there underneath the news, but you've got to squint pretty hard to see it. And, you know, the next, the next little while we'll, we'll uncover more, uh, but it's, it's, it's a very challenging, you know, these, these are the sorts of things we have to get right in this decade if we're going to succeed in this difficult task on climate. And this is a big one that's going to potentially stand in our way unless we really manage it well. I'm pulling from my bookcase a, a book called The Future We Choose, uh, which I think can guide <laughs> us at this critical moment. Sorry, Christiane. <laughs> um, no, I mean, that that comment, um, Tom, takes us back to, you know, sort of a leitmotif that we have had in many of these episodes, which is uh, acute and chronic. The moment that mm. we see those two as being mutually exclusive uh, routes of engagement or motivations, then we're done for. Then yeah. we're totally done for. Because we know that as humans, we will tend toward the acute. Because that's, you know, our human evolution has uh, has trained us to first tend to the lion that is roaring right in front of us before we tend to everything before else. Before we give up smoking, um, although which kills more. <laughs> yes. Um, and so so the, the question is, and, you know, here I still hold my trust um, that, that, that I myself need to fertilize every day because the news does not fertilize it, but hold my trust in human long-term wisdom and human capacity to realize that we must do both the acute and the chronic. We must deal with both of those challenges. It's not that we can accept that one is actually going to throw the other one out the window. So, you know, in, in David's um, terms, we have to be able to, what did you say, walk, chew gum and play violin. Well, exactly. Yeah. And, and, and we've never had more capacity to do that than right now. And, and also just, you know, I'm, I'm very much in awe of David's ability to look at this humanitarian crisis and contextualise it with so many others that are not on our television screens right now. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you, Christiane. It's, it's just hard, right? It's hard to solve an acute problem with a, with a long-term solution. And we see that time and again. In, and that's, that is where the answer lies, whether it's, you know, deciding that you're going to improve your health by going running every day or deciding you're going to avoid future conflict by focusing on energy consumption you know, it's hard for us to do. And what that's the growing up that we need to do if we're going to solve many of these big problems. And we will. We must, we can, we will, someone once said to me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, anything else to share before we close out this episode? 
Just just a nod, uh, I think, Tom, to, uh, you know, ourselves, the part in ourselves that is beyond sad, right? That is just deeply, deeply concerned. And all of us have a part of that. Um, and there's so many people out there who are just incredible. I, I don't even know what adjective to use. It's, it's beyond concerned. It's beyond afraid. Uh, you know, we, we can so easily push ourselves into a corner of, um, of, of debilitation of who we are. And so just, uh, you know, call out there to those who are in that situation that we understand, Mm. we understand that pain. Yeah, absolutely. And, and further a call out to the remarkable citizens of the country of Ukraine. I mean, it has been incredible to watch this spirit that, you know, places like the country where I live harken back to days, decades ago, when people feel like that spirit was present. Is there live and in full view of the world? And I think whatever comes out of this, and we hope and pray that it is not more um, loss of life and and, and um, heartbreak, it has completely changed the world, the way the world sees Ukraine and massively increased the estimation and understanding of those people. Completely. Yeah, yeah and and you've and pe- regular listeners will have heard me many times speak uh, of how important uh, TV comedians have been to me, uh, helping through the Trump period and all the rest of it. But yeah. it turns out they make very turns good, out they should be in charge. They make yeah. very good presidents. <laughs> all right, thanks, friends. We're not going to have any music this week. It feels like it's a very acute episode, and it kind of didn't really feel appropriate. But we'll be back as ever next week. Uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks for focusing on these issues. None of this stuff's easy, but that's why we've got to do it. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye. So there you go. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. Hi, everybody. This is Clay. I'm the producer of the show. Very short credits from us this week. Uh, Thank you so much to Lord William Haig and David Miliband for joining us today on the show. Great to have them back on. So I know a lot of us have been busy with the news. I just wanted to inform you, uh, if you didn't see, that we had another episode we released this week about the latest IPCC report uh, that came out on Monday. Uh, We released a podcast the following day on Tuesday with Patrick Verkoyan, a CEO of the Global Center on Adaptation. Uh, Be sure, if you have not listened, to go back to that and give it a spin. Uh, Last word from me before you move on with the rest of your day. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook on LinkedIn under the name at Global Optimism. And if you enjoy this podcast, would you consider leaving us a rating and writing us review on Apple Podcasts? Uh, We read every single one and it really does make a difference getting the word out about our show. Thank you for doing that. Next week, we are continuing in our series on the future of food. Uh, This episode we've put together for you will take you into the global food system and the effect that climate change is having on farmers, their land. We look at how they can adapt to overcome the impacts of climate change and, you know, who needs to come to the table to support them. You'll hear from a coffee farmer in East Uganda, the, the director general of Consumers International, and yeah, Wanjira Matai, among others. So it's a great episode. Can't wait to share with you. That's coming out next Thursday. Uh, We've done two episodes previously in this series, The Future of Food, and you can find them in our podcast feed, or I've put a link in the show notes directly to those episodes. 
Um, but the best way to make sure that you don't miss the next episode is to hit follow or subscribe. Okay, that's everything. Thanks. We'll see you next Thursday. <laughs>